Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. This week we're searching for ET. SETI director Jill Tarter will be explaining how to look for signs of life in deep space. We talk to the scientific advisor on the alien prequel Prometheus. And we're exploring the chemistry that may have spawned life on Earth in the first place. Hello, it's Sunday, June the 10th, and welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Kat Arney, and also here this week is Chris Smith. Hello, and coming up in the news this week, how researchers have used a blood sample from a pregnant woman to sequence the genome of her baby before it's even been born, why a pregnant woman's immune system doesn't attack her developing child, with new insights on that, and a way to help dyslexics to read more easily. Manipulation of letter spacing, it's uh, easy to implement. We don't see why publisher might not print out books with wider spacing that would be very easy and feasible to do. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. In a 1959 paper entitled Searching for Interstellar Communications, published in the journal Nature, two Cornell researchers, Giuseppe Cocconi and Philip Morrison, open by saying, and I'm going to read from the paper, it says, No theories yet exist which enable a reliable estimate of the probabilities of 1. Planet formation, 2. Origin of life, 3. Evolution of societies possessing advanced scientific capabilities. Our environment suggests that stars of the main sequence with a lifetime of many billions of years can possess planets that, of a small set of which, two, Earth and probably Mars, support life, that life on one such planet includes a society recently capable of considerable scientific investigation. And they go on to say it follows then that near some star, rather like the Sun, there could well be civilizations with scientific interests and with technical possibilities much greater than those now available to us. They then say, we shall assume that long ago such civilizations established a channel of communication that would one day become known to us and that they will look forward patiently to the answering signals from the sun which would make known to them that a new society, i.e. us, has entered the community of intelligence. What channel of communication would it be? They speculate. Well, Jill Tarter is the outgoing director of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or SETI, and she's with us from California. Hello, Jill. Hello there, Chris. So what channels of communication that Giuseppe Cocconi and Philip Morrison were discussing, what channels are you using and have gone, uh, to, gone on to use over the last 50 years? Well, a lot has changed since that original paper. First of all, we now know about planets. Planets are everywhere. And uh, it's where we're pointing our telescopes. And how are we listening? What channels are we imagining? Well, Cocconi and Morrison figured there would be one radio channel at a frequency of about 1420 megahertz, the frequency of the hydrogen atom, uh, the most abundant element in the universe. And indeed, the first radio search was done one year later in 1960 using a single channel around that frequency. Today, we uh, use hundreds of millions of 
radio channels, and we search a range of radio frequencies that uh, happen to be a quiet window that nature provides us on the universe. But it's not just radio. Today we're also using optical telescopes to look for for laser signals. And my colleagues here at the SETI Institute in the Sagan Center for the Study of Life in the Universe, they're not looking for technosignatures, which is what my group has been looking for, but they're looking for biosignatures. They're trying to figure out whether there are microbes out there as well as mathematicians that could build transmitters. Um, So what's the actual infrastructure of SETI like? Is it a massive network of interconnected telescopes that share their data that they're outputting, or do you have certain facilities in certain places? How does it work? Well, SETI is a discipline. The SETI Institute is one practitioner of that particular discipline. And at the SETI Institute, we have built a telescope called the Allen Telescope Array in Northern California, which has been built with SETI in mind from its inception. We use that telescope 12 or more hours a day with automated signal processing systems that look for narrowband signals, that the kind of thing that we don't think nature can produce, but that our technology does all the time. And we point our telescopes in the directions of these newly discovered exoplanets from the Kepler spacecraft and from ground-based observatories. Other places, such as the Berkeley SETI group, use receivers on the large radio telescope in Arecibo. They record a little bit of data continuously, and they allow people to massage that data with a screensaver on their laptops at home. Uh, Other SETI organizations use telescopes in Italy, some in Australia, in Argentina, There's been a little work in Japan, uh, LOFAR in the uh, Netherlands and uh, Northern Europe and the UK is coming online with a low-frequency radio search. And then there are other observatories, primarily university-based, that look for bright optical flashes with meter-class visible telescopes. That is the scope of SETI today. It's uh, not at all monolithic. We try to organize collegially, but there are a number of groups doing their own thing. So it's not just confined and constrained to one particular way of looking for signals. You're actually going actually right across the whole spectrum, aren't you? But space is a massive place, so is it just that we're seeing our message being lost in the medium? There's so much space out there that we just can't scan all of it at the right time to hear what we need to hear. Well, we haven't done so yet. Although 50 years of searching sounds like a long time to most people, we've hardly begun to explore the nine-dimensional space that uh, electromagnetic signals can exist in. A good analogy, if you wanted to sum up all of that search space and say that's the cosmic ocean that we'd like to explore, and then you make the analogy with the Earth's oceans, over 50 years so far we've scooped about one eight-ounce glass of water from those oceans and examined it. But our tools, our glasses, are getting better really much faster, exponentially faster than in the past. And so over the next decade or two, we really should have tools that are commensurate to this uh, huge search. And if we're looking for the right thing, 
then we have a good chance of finding it if it's there. It also presupposes that if we can pick something up, that such a civilization has been capable of sending these signals for a very long time, doesn't it? Because the universe is a finite age. It's 13.7 billion years, give or take a few. And if other civilizations are going to get to the stage where they can begin to send signals of the type that we would be able to receive and decode, they must have existed for a very long time already because of the finite speed of light coming across space to get to us. Does that not put some constraint on what really is possible? You're correct. We are the youngest kids on the technological block. We are just emerging with the capabilities to uh, try and uh, participate in some sort of interstellar exchange. Most of the stars in our region of the galaxy are probably even a billion years older than the sun. So uh, even locally, there will have been opportunities for another technological civilization to start up before ours did here on Earth. Having said that, uh, we're still constrained by what we know in the 21st century. We can use the tools that we have. We can try and imagine other tools, and eventually if we invent some new technology that seems to make sense for interstellar discussions, then we'll use that too. But right now, the limitation is on us and on the receiving end given what we know about the universe and the technologies we have at hand. How do we actually interpret the data? How do we look for something that's meaningful? And are we looking for something which is meaningful to us? But if we were a very different alien species, it would be meaningful but would mean nothing to us. Is that a possibility? We're just missing something? Well, we're using computers to look at the data, and therefore they're finding what we've programmed them to look for. And in our case, what we're doing is we're looking for patterns. We're looking for patterns in frequency and time that don't seem to be able to be produced by natural astrophysical emission processes. That is, we've looked at the universe. We've looked so far at what we know about how molecules and atoms and conglomerates can produce signals, and we've carved out a corner of phase space where nature doesn't seem to be playing. So if we find these signals, they'll be obviously engineered. Yeah, so it's a neat way of subtracting the background so you can see what's really hiding there. Jill, we'll, we'll just move it on because um, I know you're with us for the rest of the programme, so we're, we're going to have lots and lots of questions coming in. In fact, I did ask everybody to tell me what would you tweet at an alien if you had the chance. Hugo Heston said I'd ask aliens how long they'd known about humans and whether we would have been better off with no technology. Interesting thought that. that you were listening just now to Jill Tata. She is with us live from the SETI Institute in California. And this is The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith and Katani. We're looking for life in outer space and on other planets this week. Kat? We are the search for E.T. And right on cue, Hollywood have spawned a potential blockbuster in the form of Prometheus, where director Ridley Scott returns to the world of the 1979 cult film Alien. Online. Atmosphere, 71% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, traces of argon gas. Whoa, now that's weather. Just like home. Take us round. Going to use that as our point of entry. Let's go through that gateway. It's exciting stuff. 
But you may be interested to know that it's also based on hard science. Now, Dr Hugh Mortimer works on the atmospheric chemistry of planets, both in and outside our solar system. He's based at the STFC's Rutherford Appleton Laboratory, but he also acted as a consultant for the makers of the film Prometheus to help them get their science right. He joins us now. Hi, Hugh. Hi, Kat. So how did you get roped into this? I was pretty lucky uh, in in the fact that I was in the right place at the right time. Essentially, I'm chairperson of a body known as the UK Planetary Forum that essentially looks after all of the planetary scientists in the UK, and we represent their interests in in the rest of the uh, world. And essentially, what that means is that um, we got approached by the researchers at uh, the Prometheus film, and that meant that we could uh, give them direct information about the real science going on in the discovery of exoplanets. So what sort of things did they need to know? They were looking to find out the true facts behind what happens in the universe. When it came to giving them research, we had to kind of adjust what we were doing, what, what we told them, because these uh, the directors, the, the people in charge of producing the special effects, they're essentially artists. They don't necessarily know the fundamental science behind it. And so... Myself, uh, various other scientists were involved in actually giving them direct hard facts about what not only space but other aspects of um, science they could use uh, realistically. Give me some examples. Um, What sort of things would the designers or the actors have to take into account? Essentially giving the film some traces of reality. And in terms of space, we were giving them information about uh, what essentially the exoplanets would look like, what the constellations would look like as they flew from Earth all the way over to uh, planet Zeta 2 particularly. What they actually wanted from us is actual simulations of what space looks like as you travel from Earth to this planetary system. And actually, the film is based on uh, two real binary stars. So where the astronauts where the uh, scientists in this particular film go is to actually a real star system it's found in the southern hemisphere it's also it's known as the two stars zeta one and zeta two reticuli are found in the constellation of reticulum so this is about 39 light years away from earth so you wouldn't expect the constellations to change and the locations of the stars to change that much but incredibly they do and and amazingly the um, directors of the actual special effects took our information, the simulations that we produced, actually created them in the star maps and, as, uh, and, and in the actual, the actual imagery that you see as the, as the uh, ship travels from Earth to this uh, particular planet. So to go from, from the fiction, fictional space, to real space and look at your research, you said that you advised them on what the atmospheres might be like on these exoplanets. How do you actually figure that out? Because, say, with Mars, we can send a probe to Mars and go, oh, the atmosphere is made of this. How on earth do you figure that out for a planet that's light years away? So what I like to think about uh, science is is we're kind of uh, detectives. We're using information around us to try and infer different aspects of uh, the properties of, of, for example, the different planetary atmospheres. I mean, we use techniques similar to how our eyes detect different colours in the world around us. We use something called spectroscopy. And in looking at the infrared light as the light from these planets, many, many light years away from Earth, actually travel and and are detected by our instruments on space-based telescopes and ground-based telescopes, we can actually analyse the wavelengths associated with those planets. We use a couple of techniques to actually detect the planets. One is 
where the actual planets, as it rotates, as it orbits around the star, actually creates a um, transit. And as that planet travels in front of the star, we get a slight dip in terms of the light that actually reaches the Earth. And we can measure the light that passes through the atmosphere of that planet and actually detect the actual atmospheric components, look at the particular gases based on the spectra that it produces. And each gas within that uh, atmosphere produces a specific spectral line. And in using that spectral line, we can actually understand the components of the gas. So these are planets many, many light years away from Earth, and they are small compared to the actual uh, planet, um, the star that it's orbiting. And so we're using very small amounts of light uh, to actually infer this data. I mean, I guess the $64 million question is, you're looking for something like oxygen that might infer the, the presence of life or water. What tend to be the main gases that you see, and have you seen water anywhere? Bringing it back to Prometheus, the actual synopsis for the film is, is quite interesting, that it's, it's asking the big questions. It's looking for the origins of life. And so this film is based on scientists in the future getting aboard a ship uh, and trying to find the creators of life on Earth. Those kind of questions are those that actually drive scientists in exoplanetary research. What we're trying to do is we're trying to find those specific uh, planets that could hold and potentially have life on it. So we look for key indicators for oxygen, water vapour, uh, carbon dioxide, methane, so greenhouse gases that can only produce by organisms that actually would digest and ingest these different types of chemicals. We've spotted several um, different planets and the spectra range and give us information about um, CO2 content, CO content, but at the moment we've, we're out of the range of um, for actually the size of the planet and the type of planet, um, how close it is to the star. So what we're looking for are planets in a particular region that could host life. You strike it lucky soon. So thank you very much. That's Hugh. That's Hugh Mortimer from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani looking for life in outer space. Um, we've had quite a lot of interaction from you at home on this one. Adam Reeks points out uh, um, he'd love to think that we'll discover evidence of life in our lifetimes. And Nat Spirit on Second Life has said they'll probably detect us before we can detect them, Kat. Scary stuff. We will be continuing our search for ET shortly when we hear about a series of experiments designed to recreate the chemicals that triggered life on the early Earth. But first, let's take a look at some of this week's leading scientific breakthroughs. So, starting with what you have for us, Chris. Well, this week, scientists have announced that they have managed to sequence the genome of an unborn baby, and they have done it using blood from the mother. So this is Jay Schenger, who's a researcher at the University of Washington at Seattle and his colleagues. It's published this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. What they did was to take saliva from the proposed father of the baby. I think he was the father. And from the saliva, they got cells from the man's mouth, which enabled them to decode his DNA. 
They then went to the mother. They had a blood sample taken from her at 18 and a half weeks of pregnancy. The blood has two components to it. There are the cells that are going around. They're chiefly mum's cells. So if you take the DNA out of those cells, then you can sequence the mother. And they did this in painstaking detail. They actually got the two what are called haplotypes. Because remember that when we have genetic material in cells, there are two sets of chromosomes, one that you get from your father and one from your mother. And when we normally do a genetic fingerprint, we just get the full sequence out and we don't actually allot the genetic sequence to one or the other of the two chromosomes. We don't know what order the actual information comes in from the two. In this study, they did do that, and that was critical because then they go to the mother's plasma, the watery stuff that washes the cells around, and in there, at about 18 and a half weeks of pregnancy, believe it or not, there is about 13% fetal DNA of the DNA that's in there. So if you take that out and you then sequence that, 13.5% of the time you're reading the baby's genetic material from cells from the baby that have broken off from the placenta and started to go around in the mother's bloodstream and then splurged out their own DNA. And what they're able to do, because they knew the father's genome and they knew the mother's genome, any differences had to be attributable to the baby because they could work out what order the baby's genes were lining up in from the two parents and they were even able to predict what mutations the baby had got de novo. In other words, new mutations that were changes to its genome that either parent didn't have. In fact, they predicted there would be 39 new genetic changes in this baby. They then waited for the baby to be born, took a sample of blood from the umbilical cord when it popped out, and then resequenced that and compared that with their genome sequence from the mother's blood and they got it right to within 98% accuracy. In fact, they missed a few of the mutations. There were 44, not 39, but they were pretty much all the way there. So an absolutely amazing achievement. And I think what's really interesting here, they do point out that it's not practical to do this because it's so much work. You couldn't do this at this stage for just one person for every pregnancy. But if you could, and in the future you will be able to, it has enormous clinical value. But the really amazing thing to me, I asked Jay Shenjo when I phoned him up and I said to him, you know, what did you spend on this? And he said, well, it was 50,000 US dollars. And you think that 10 years ago, the Human Genome Project consumed millions of pounds or dollars to achieve what these guys did, as, as he put it, a graduate student project. That absolutely blows my tiny mind, that story. It really does. Um, We have another story about pregnancy here. Now, uh, never mind wearing unusual clothes or talking in incomprehensible slang, the feeling that your own child may be foreign to you starts much younger than the teenage years. In fact, it starts right back in the womb. Now, because a developing fetus is made of cells bearing proteins made from genes from both mum and dad, as we've heard, it should be recognised as a foreign invader by the mother's immune system and destroyed. Now, the fact that it isn't has been a complete mystery to developmental biologists for many decades. But now, new results in the journal Science from Adrian Erlbacher and his team at the New York University School of Medicine have finally revealed how a fetus is protected from this potential deadly attack. Their findings could not only help to explain what happens when sub-pregnancies fail, but could even be extended to improving organ transplants or treating a much more undesirable growth, namely cancer. Okay, well let's start with the simple stuff first. So what actually happens when the immune system recognises something as foreign? 
So normally when our body detects something foreign like an organ transplant, it starts an inflammatory reaction around the invader. So your tissues produce signalling molecules called chemokines and these chemokines attract deadly immune cells called T-cells which set about attacking and destroying this foreign tissue. And this is why it's so important that transplant patients take drugs to suppress their immune system. Obviously pregnant women don't normally need to take immune suppressing drugs. They're just pregnant. So what's going on? Well, to find out why a mother's body doesn't label her baby as foreign, the scientists turned their attention to a structure called the decidua. And this is a specialised barrier tissue that encapsulates both the developing fetus and the placenta. And they were using mice as a model system. And the researchers discovered that the chemokine genes had been switched off in the decidua using a kind of chemical tagging known as epigenetic modifications. So these killer T-cells, there were no chemokines and the killer T-cells weren't being recruited there. So this immunological dead zone basically means that the fetus is protected from immune attack. And we think the immune system might be involved in certain things like miscarriage. So will this help people who suffer recurrent miscarriages? Absolutely. Well, at the moment, this research has only been done in mice. So the scientists do need to confirm whether the same gene silencing is at work in humans. But if it is, as you say, there could be really big implications for our understanding of why some pregnancies do fail, why some women give birth prematurely, or also why some suffer complications like diseases such as preeclampsia. Super. Kat, thank you very much. Well, also this week, scientists think that they have discovered the smoking gun behind arterial disease. For a long time, we've been taught in medical schools and elsewhere that when an artery becomes damaged by smoking or lifestyle or diabetes, then what actually happens is that the injury to the blood vessel triggers the muscle in the coat of the artery to divide and the cells take up more space and this makes a little bulge that slowly encroaches on the inside lumen of the blood vessel, blocking it off. But there's a paper that's been published this week. It's in the, the journal Nature Communications. It's by Zhen Yu Tang, who's a researcher at the University of California at Berkeley. And what he and his colleagues did was to take some samples of arteries and also jugular vein, actually, and they stained the arterial wall for markers of muscle cells. And what's interesting is that in the muscle layer in the vessel wall, there are cells lurking in there that don't stain up with any markers for muscle. And they wondered what these cells were, so they investigated further, and they have chemical hallmarks of being some kind of stem cell. In fact, they've dubbed them the multipotent vascular stem cell because in tests these cells are capable of producing a whole raft of different tissues, including cartilage-producing cells and even bone-producing cells. So they wondered what role they might actually be playing in the process of vascular injury and atherosclerosis. So in an intriguing series of experiments, they do things like culturing these cells in the dish and also injuring blood vessels in experimental animals and showing that what actually happens is it's not the muscle cells that start to divide and respond to the injury. It's these stem cells and they divide and then they turn into cells that resemble muscle cells, which is why researchers thought that it was the muscle that was doing it initially. But because we've been barking up this incorrect cellular tree, the discovery of these new stem cells means that we may now be able to unlock new avenues to try to control or combat the process of arterial disease and maybe come at it from a new direction and with a new raft of drugs to prevent the process. Well, also this week, scientists at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine have developed a new tool that can help them to identify the parts of Africa that are most likely to be susceptible to epidemics of malaria. 
Knowing where these places are means that efforts to prevent malaria can be concentrated on just these disease hotspots, which will save money and thousands of lives. Matt Cairns led this study, and he's with us now. Hello, Matt. Hello, Chris. So, what, first of all, is the scale of the malaria problem in Africa that you're dealing with? Uh, so, malaria is one of the biggest killers in Africa, particularly in, in pregnant women and children under five years of age. Current estimates from the World Health Organization suggest 170 million malaria cases and perhaps 600,000 deaths in Africa each year. So it's a really big problem. So given that burden of disease, how could we intervene in order to try to reduce those numbers? So, So what we looked at was a new strategy called Seasonal Malaria Chemo Prevention, or SMC, which involves giving all children under the age of five a three day course of anti malarial drugs once per month during the rainy season. And where this approach has been used, it's worked very well and prevented around 8 out of every 10 malaria cases. Importantly, a similar number of the severe malaria cases where children actually need to be admitted to hospital. But to move from research to the real world, we need to know how widely this can be used. So in this study, our aim was to identify the areas of Africa where this approach could be useful by identifying the parts of Africa where most of the malaria cases occur within a few months of the year and so understand where this approach of giving monthly courses of drugs for three or four months would be most effective. Because it's critical that you know where there is a fairly constrained disease activity sort of zone because then it means you can put your resources in there in an efficient way if it's spread out fairly diffusely over a very large area with a a not a very tight peak of of disease activity it must be much harder to intervene exactly and so the problem we're trying to overcome is that for large parts of africa we don't actually have reliable information on the pattern of malaria over the course of the year Um, but we found that, that the areas where most malaria cases occur within a few months tend to have quite a distinctive rainfall pattern. And in these places, most of the annual rainfall actually falls within two or three months. And that's because the mosquitoes that transmit malaria rely on standing water to breed. So in areas where there is a short rainy season followed by a long dry season, mosquitoes are only found in in large numbers for a few months. So we realised that we could use rainfall to, to understand what the pattern of malaria cases over the year would be like in areas where we didn't actually have that information. And we were then able to use information on rainfall, uh, which which is available for for all of Africa, to to map the areas where the pattern of malaria cases is likely to be suitable for this seasonal uh, drug-based prevention. What about the problem of resistance, though? Because that's a major issue with anti-malarials, isn't it? Yes, so in the areas where this is currently going to be used, there's very little resistance to the two drugs um, that that, that are planned to to be used, which is sulfadoxin pyrimethamine combined with amadioquine. And in in most of West Africa, those drugs remain very effective. Uh, So that's that's why those drugs uh, have been chosen to to use in this strategy. Based on this analysis, what area is amenable to this kind of intervention where you go in with the drugs and therefore how many people could it impact? How many malaria cases and therefore lives could you prevent being lost? We we identified two areas uh, of Africa. First of all, the Sahel and Sub-Sahel, which is a wide belt that extends from from Gambia and Senegal in West Africa uh, all the way across to parts of Sudan in in the east. Uh, and, And that belt actually contains some of the areas with the highest number of malaria cases in all of Africa. Uh, and secondly, according to the rainfall patterns, there's, there's another uh, quite large area of southern and eastern Africa that might be suited to this approach. Uh, and that was not widely recognised before we conducted our research uh, and is something we plan to look at in, in more detail. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the effectiveness, uh, we identified that about 40 million children live in areas where this could be appropriate. About 25 million of those in, in the Sahel and Sub-Sahel belt where the malaria burden is very high indeed. 
And in terms of the actual impact, we tried to be realistic rather than optimistic about the number of cases and deaths that, that would be prevented. So, for example, we assumed that if the drugs were available, not every child would necessarily receive the medication every month. And we also tried to err on the side of caution regarding the effectiveness of the drugs. But even with our cautious approach, we still found that you might be able to prevent 10 million cases of malaria and 50,000 deaths every year. So it's, it's really exciting, the, the potential impact of, of this new approach. Can poor countries afford this intervention strategy, though? Yes, so, so the, the drugs themselves are not expensive. Uh, and actually to, to treat a child um, f- for three or four courses over the year would cost uh, something in the order of one and a half to two US dollars. So, so it's not expensive. Um, the countries may uh, need some support to, to begin doing this from the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB and Malaria, or the US President's Malaria Initiative. But the costs involved are not particularly large. And certainly, when compared with other malaria control tools, this is a reasonable value thing to do. And lastly, Matt, it's all very well if we keep shoveling the money in to help these people. But what about if there's another economic downturn, things get even tighter and people say we can't afford to keep supporting this, so they don't put the money in. What then happens to the people who have had their malaria prevented at a young age by your strategy and they then turn into adults with malaria? Is there not a danger they could get worse disease and the mortality rate could rebound and be even higher? Um, So so that's something that's been looked at carefully in in the studies that that have happened to date, Um, although that is something that that does obviously need to, we need continuous monitoring because most of the research studies have been over the space of uh, at most three or four years. So so there is is a concern that if this is done over a very long period, it it, it could be problematic. Um, But those concerns were also raised for insecticide-treated nets because it's really a a similar idea that you'd be reducing the amount of exposure that, that children have had. Um, and, and quite long-term follow-up of, of trials of insecticide-treated nets showed that actually, um, although there may be a slight uh, increase in, in the malaria that adults or older children experience, it's massively outweighed by the amount of by the malaria you prevent in childhood. So its cost-benefit still comes down in favour of, of using these preventive approaches. Matt, we must leave it there. Thank you very much. That's Matt Cairns. He is from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and you can read more about that work if you'd like to follow it up in the journal Nature Communications. And now with a look at some of the other stories that have been making scientific headlines this week, including a way to help dyslexics to read more easily, here's Mira Senthillingham with our Naked Scientist's Newsflash. A protein found in milk can keep obesity and diabetes at bay, as well as improve physical endurance. When given to mice on a high-fat diet, the protein nicotinamide riboside was found to prevent weight gain and type 2 diabetes by entering cells and increasing the activity of mitochondria the powerhouses of the cell, to improve metabolism. The team hoped the protein could be used as a supplement, but as it's found in a range of foods as well as milk, including bread and beer, a varied diet holds the key until then. Johan Oax from the École Polytechnique de Fédérale led the work published in Science. Many age-related diseases going from obesity, diabetes, to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease are linked with defective mitochondria. Here we provide a natural product which we consume every day which helps to keep this mitochondria in better shape. There are products out there which we can consume so we're more protected against the decline with ageing. Mobile phones are being used to improve water supplies in rural Africa, according to research in the Journal of Hydroinformatics. Patrick Thompson from the University of Oxford developed smart water pumps containing data transmitters that send out text messages when a pump breaks down. 
The technology uses the movement of a pump's handle to estimate its water flow, with data sent back to a central office when this flow is impaired to arrange for its repair. 70 of these pumps are being introduced in Kenya later this year. Across sub-Saharan Africa, it's estimated that a third of all hand pumps at any one time are non-functioning. When these pumps break, often the people who are qualified and equipped to repair them do not know that they've broken. So the idea of this system is that as soon as a pump is, is no longer doing its job, not working properly, those people who have the skills and knowledge to repair them know straight away that the downtimes for pumps can be shortened and the communities can have access to fresh water. Increasing the spacing between letters significantly improves the reading skills of people with dyslexia. Writing in the journal PNAS, Marco Zorzi from the University of Padua asked 94 French and Italian children with dyslexia to read pieces of text with both standard and double-spaced wording and found that the widened spacing doubled the accuracy of their reading and increased their reading speed by 20%. The team suggests the spacing overcomes the problem of crowding, where letters are closely surrounded by other letters, making them harder to identify. These findings show that visual attentional factors may play a, a really important role in dyslexia, in addition to problems related to a phonological domain. This manipulation of letter spacing is uh, easy to implement. In principle, we don't see why publishers might not print out books with wider spacing. The era of digital printing on demand that would be very easy and feasible to do. And finally, the personality of a Gouldian finch can be predicted by the colour of its head. Three aspects of personality were measured in 40 of these endangered Australian birds in the wild. Risk-taking, aggression and boldness. By exposing them to unfamiliar objects, silhouettes of predator birds and limited access to food. The team, led by Claudia Metke-Hoffman from Liverpool John Moores University, found that finches with redheads tended to show more aggression to access food, whilst those with blackheads were more bold and risk-taking. The red-headed birds, they may have a disadvantage because they are more conspicuous with a red head, so they suffer by higher predation. So it's good for them to be less exploitive. The black-headed birds, in contrast, are their subordinate, but because they are less conspicuous, they can take greater risk. And this combination can have important implications for conservation to find the optimal group composition which would give the species the optimal combination to survive in the wild. And that work was published this week in the journal Animal Behaviour. Sadly, I doubt if that translates to uh, to human redheads or not. That was Mira Senthillingham with our Naked Scientist News Flash. And transcripts and all the references for all of our news this week can be found on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. As if carbon dioxide and methane aren't enough to worry about, it now seems that we're managing to make a whole load of new greenhouse gases too. A team, including Johannes Laub at the University of East Anglia, has identified several new man-made compounds that are contributing to global warming. These halogenated compounds, a bit like CFCs that are now banned, are only found in tiny concentrations, but their chemistry means that they're likely to stick around in the air for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham went to meet Johannes in his basement laboratory. Basically, I have to reach up a bit. Ah. So these are air samples from Tasmania, and it's a man-made archive which goes back to 1978. This cylindrical metal flask is among dozens hanging from the shelves that line the lab. 
Air inside these containers is reckoned to be some of the cleanest on the planet. If you get very clean air from Tasmania, which is actually has gone to Antarctica and back again to Cape Grim and Tasmania, then you get a representative picture of uh, what the compound is doing on a long-term basis in the atmosphere. The samples are studied using a machine at the centre of the room which resembles an oversized photocopier. This mass spectrometer is able to separate and analyse air samples to identify minute concentrations of gases to find chemicals that shouldn't naturally be there. We're separating very small amounts of trace gases in the air from the main parts of it, which are oxygen and nitrogen mainly, and then we still have a, quite a mixture of different compounds. We have to separate them from each other. When we've done that, we actually destroy them. By destroying them, we can see a characteristic pattern, and that pattern changes over time and gives us the information which compound is coming through and how much. What are you interested in looking for, then? I'm mainly interested in halogenated gases because... Um, some of them have very long atmospheric lifetimes, so once released, it takes decades and sometimes centuries or even thousands of years for the atmosphere to break them down again. And these gases, very often very strong greenhouse gases, so they are actually thousands of times more effective than carbon dioxide. You're finding these chemicals for the first time in the atmosphere. Oh yes, because industry is, is introducing more and more new chemicals, it's very hard for uh, scientists to keep pace. In addition, our ability to find them has improved significantly. So we actually find parts per quadrillion in the atmosphere. So parts per quadrillion? Yes. But when you've got that tiny, tiny concentration of these gases, mm -hmm. does it matter if they're greenhouse gases? Well, for instance, we've recently detected new perfluorocarbons in the atmospheres. Well, their, their abundances are on the order of uh, just below parts per trillion, but that means several thousand tonnes of these molecules have been released in the atmosphere already. And in addition, they're very long-lived. They won't go away for the next several thousand years. Once added into the atmosphere, they become a, a permanent part of it. Johannes Laub from the University of East Anglia. He was talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham. And you can get the latest edition of Planet Earth from our website, nakedscientist.com slash planet earth. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with a rather croaky cat Arnie this week. And returning to our theme of extraterrestrial life, one of the most fundamental questions about how life began in the first place must be answered here on Earth. In the 1950s, the chemist Stanley Miller made history when he recreated some of the conditions of the early Earth in a complicated glass apparatus in which he mixed water, ammonia, methane and hydrogen. He heated it and then he zapped it to simulate lightning. And from those simple experiments, one of the building blocks of life emerged, the amino acid glycine. More recently, Jeffrey Bader, who's a professor of marine chemistry at the University of California, 
San Diego, and a student formerly of Stanley Miller rediscovered the samples from Miller's original experiments in his lab, and he's since spent quite a bit of time reanalyzing them using modern chemical techniques that weren't available to Stanley Miller when he first did those experiments. And Jeff's with us now. Hello, Jeff. Hi, how are you doing? Okay, thank you. So, first of all, Stanley Miller identified just a handful of chemicals that were in his experiments, but what did your reanalysis of his famous 1950s experiments show? We found uh, a lot more uh, amino acids, of course, using our modern analytical methods. And um, what was interesting is some of these amino acids um, look very similar to the kinds of amino acids that we see uh, present in carbonaceous chondrites or a type of meteorite. So I I think this uh, was a nice demonstration that this early experiment of his uh, mimic chemistry not only possible on the early Earth, but uh, elsewhere in the solar system. Just talk us through exactly what Stanley Miller did and why it's so useful as an indicator of what could have been going on when the planet was much younger. Well, the idea was to simulate some sort of uh, early Earth environment. And the one that um, Stanley Miller and Harold Urey came up with was a a glass apparatus that simulated the ocean-atmosphere interaction. And so there was a flask that contained water, which would represent the ocean. That was connected to a, a, a larger flask where there were uh, electrodes that could simulate uh, lightning in the form of a spark discharge. And then from the gas flask, there was a tube running back into the water flask. So this was a, a cycle where you evaporate water from the ocean, uh, you that interacts with gases in the atmosphere, which are subjected to a spark discharge or lightning bolt. And then this washes out of the atmosphere back in the water. And so this was a not an ad hoc design. It was a very carefully thought out uh, design. What's interesting is that uh, Miller studied three different apparatus configurations. Uh, the one I just described is uh, what we call the classical apparatus, because it's the one you see in textbooks. Um, But there was another apparatus uh, that was interesting to us, and that was one in which the water flask was connected directly to the gas flask by a a little um, aspirator, a little tiny tube, in which water, when it boiled out of the water flask, was injected into the spark uh, gas flask, uh, in the form of a, a jet of steam, um, much like a geyser that happens on the Earth today. Or a volcano, presumably. Or, or a volcano, yes. And and so we were very interested in this because Stanley only published one brief communication on that apparatus, and it strongly suggested that the yields were better than in his classical apparatus. But he never followed through with that for whatever reason. So when we found uh, all these um, archived extracts from his original experiments, we were stunned to find all of the ones preserved from not only his classical apparatus, but also the volcanic apparatus and and another configuration. And we were particularly interested in that volcanic apparatus because, uh, like I said, we thought that based on his preliminary results, the yields might be higher. And so when we analyzed that, Lo and behold, we found a lot more different amino acids, ones that had never been made before. And in addition, the the composition of those amino acids looked even more strikingly similar to what we saw in meteorites. And so 
I believe this really is a nice example of how you could have localized systems on the early Earth consisting of small volcanic systems and where wherein you did a lot of syntheses, which um, before people thought happened in a sort of a global atmosphere. It's Darwin's warm little pond almost, isn't it? So you're saying that what this shows is that even with very, very simple setups, you can produce really quite complicated molecules, which are some of the fundamental building blocks of life systems. And so it's perfectly possible for Earth from very, very basic building blocks to assemble some really complicated molecules that we would have needed. That's correct, yes. And uh, the more we get into this, the more compelling that argument, that experiment even, uh, is today. One of the other things we found was that there were a set of experiments that he did in 1958 in which he uh, did the experiment. He isolated these um, various uh, extracts from the experiment, and he carefully cataloged these, set them aside, and put them in these little boxes, and then he never, never analyzed them or never reported on them. They're carefully recorded in his notebook, but he never followed through with the final analyses. And One in particular caught our attention because it was the first experiment of this type that used um, the gas hydrogen sulfide, H2S, which smells like rotten eggs. And uh, when we analyzed that set of samples, we found even a larger array of amino acids. So you put all this together, both the volcanic uh, coupled with the H2S experiment, uh, he he made on the order of 50 different amino acids, which uh, is, is remarkable given the simplicity of the experiment. And what's the relevance to finding this in the chondrites, the meteor samples? Why is that important? Well, I think there's been a controversy about whether the atmosphere of the early Earth was ever, uh, ever had the composition that, that Miller used in his original experiments. And so I've heard comments that, uh, you know, the prebiotic soup is irrelevant, uh, the Miller experiment is irrelevant. The finding that we uh, that we found strikingly similar compositions in the spark discharge experiment compared to the carbonaceous meteorites indicates that this type of synthesis took place somewhere in the solar system. So, um, you know, the Miller experiment, even though you argue it may not be relevant to, to the Earth, which I strongly disagree with, certainly took place someplace in the solar system. Uh, my own thinking is is that in the early solar nebula, you made uh, bioelectric discharges. Uh, we know that there is intense lightning in solar nebula that produce uh, the reagents you need for amino acid synthesis, uh, aldehydes, ketones, hydrogen cyanide. And those coalesced into the meteorite parent body. And during the time in that meteorite parent body where water percolated through the meteorite, you made the amino acids. Uh, so it's very analogous to what he did in his experiments, but it happened uh, uh, someplace in the solar system. Would the idea then be that it's not just potentially Earth that is making these biological building blocks? It could also be that our entire solar system made them. They happen to land on Earth as much as anywhere else, and Earth was the right place for life to then get spawned. Uh, I think that's probably true, yes. Uh, You you had both home-ground synthesis directly on the Earth and stuff falling in from space, which all contributed to this primordial soup that uh, led eventually into more complex molecules that eventually spawned the first self-replicating entities, which was the origin of life.
Jeff, thank you very much. Jeff Bader, Professor of Marine Chemistry at the University of California, San Diego. And we're exploring the field of astrobiology this week. We have with us Jill Tarter from the SETI Institute in California, Hugh Mortimer from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory, and Jeff Bader from the University of California, San Diego. Our guest panel this week, let's kick off with some questions. Kat, what have you got coming in so far on Facebook? Um, We've got one on Facebook from Dennis, who says, what do we actually classify as intelligent life? Sounds like one for Jill. Jill, what do you think? Well, we're very pragmatic. For us, intelligence is the ability to construct and operate some kind of transmitter that modifies their environment in ways that we can see over interstellar distances. So, Jeff, I think this question's probably uh, ideal for you. In Second Life, Android Neox is wondering about the handedness of molecules. We know that amino acids that we use on Earth are all left-handed. He's wondering about the molecules that you found in Stanley Miller's experiments. Were they of an even distribution of right and left-handed forms, or was there a bias? No, the amino acids that were made in the Miller experiment were uh, equal-handedness, what we call a racemic mixture. And that's what you expect from a pure chemical synthesis. Uh, You only get handedness when you have some sort of interaction that in itself has some sort of handedness. And uh, in this experiment, there was no such interaction, and so you get completely equal-handedness in the amino acids that are produced. I suppose that must give you confidence, too, that the tubes haven't been contaminated, because if you had seen all of one sort of handedness and not another, you'd know that probably the source was a biological source that had crept into the tube later. Yes, that's correct, because if there was any biological contamination, it would consist primarily of the left-handed amino acids, and so you should alter that equal mixture abundances. But there, there is also amino acids in this mixture that, in fact, the majority of them are not found in living organisms, and so you can rule out contamination on that basis alone. Cat. We've had a question in, uh, this is probably for Jill from Theo Gibson, quite quickly. What potential technologies for communication that are out there are we currently not using? Obviously, you're using various telescopes and radio receivers and things, but is there anything, any other technologies that we could start looking at? Well, we're using the radio part of the spectrum and the optical part of the spectrum. We'd like to uh, take our techniques into the infrared. There's less absorption and scattering by dust between the galaxies in the infrared than there is in the optical. And basically none of our experiments do a really good job at transient signals, things that just go bump in the night once. We know how to do that search. It just takes more compute power than we have on Earth at the moment. Um, Hugh, um, Ryan Chown asks on Facebook, have hydrothermal systems similar to the ones you were discussing, Jeff, been found on other bodies in the system apart from just Earth? Well, I think it's an interesting one. The uh, extremophiles that could potentially be detected by um, direct planetary probes, so going to our local neighbours and actually trying to look for microbial uh, life, that where we are identifying these would potentially be around Jupiter, um, the Callisto, uh, Ganymede uh, orbiters, potentially to go underneath the ice surfaces of these planet, uh, these moons of, uh, the, uh, of Jupiter. Jill, on a practical front, Ian from Muswell Hill in London, he would like to know how you get around the problem of of radio noise. How do you make sure that your signals aren't contaminated by all the stuff we're splurging out here on Earth? Well, in fact, our signals are contaminated, and that's why at the SETI Institute, using the Allen Telescope Array, we do our signal processing in near real time. And we keep very good databases of all of the signals that we've found and have seen recently. We do a lot of comparison, a lot of reclassification. And then 
if we think it's something we haven't seen before, we actually immediately go back and look again. And we look on source, we look off source. While the signal is likely to still be persistent, we chase it down. And I understand that there's a a conference that you're running where people who are interested in this can actually find out more and get involved. Absolutely. Your listeners who want to continue asking and trying to find answers to the kinds of questions we've been discussing tonight should uh, come to Santa Clara in Northern California the weekend of June 22nd to 24th. They should come to SETICON, too. It's where imagination and science meet. We'll have Hollywood astronauts, real astronauts, the scientists who are finding exoplanets and are looking for biosignatures and technosignatures, and they'll all be available for discussion and more questions and hopefully some answers. Speaking of which, we'd better get over to our question of the week with Hannah Critchlow looking at actually some of the recipes for life. This week we find out if we can create life by simply mixing elements from the periodic table. Hi, my name is Bob Archibald. I live in Berkeley, California. Has there been any progress in creating a living organism from basic elements? Seems like with so many advances in human biology, science should be able to produce a very simple organism in the lab. We turn to Professor Lee Cronin from Glasgow University, who tinkers with metallic elements, and he tells us... This is a really important question because it will allow us to define life beyond the current toolbox that is used in biology on planet Earth. But to answer this question, we need to sidestep the definition of life and instead ask a different question, which is, what is the minimal unit of matter on planet Earth that can exhibit and undergo Darwinian evolution in an autonomous fashion? And the result is both obvious and startling. It's a very simple cell, bacterial cell, amoeba, and so on. So what we've tried to do in my lab is to engineer all inorganic cells to see if we can put these features together. So by using molybdenum or tungsten oxides, we've been able to make very large clusters containing many hundreds of units. But not only that, we can have different building blocks templating the clusters. So we almost have an analogy to DNA, RNA and proteins in the clusters built in. So the question now is, can we get this system to boot up, to replicate and evolve? And for that, you need to watch this space. So our version of life uses DNA and protein building blocks. But you can create a different type of building block by making clusters of basic metallic elements that can form structures similar to membranes and enzymes. But getting these clusters to replicate, mutate and evolve by themselves has not yet happened. So we're not quite there yet. Evan comments on the forum that probably the closest we have come is Craig Venter's effort in 2010, where using a DNA synthesis machine, he generated the genetic sequence and put it into a closely related bacteria's cell. And although this was hailed in the more sensationalist media as creating life in the laboratory, there is still a long way to go. Really, this was more like hijacking of an already existing cell. Now, from life to death. Hello, Naked Scientists. My name is Steve. We've all heard that women on average live longer than men. Many studies show this. However, as I understand it, these studies are based on average lifetimes between males and females and do not account for variations in lifestyle. My question is, ignoring any outside influences like smoking, risk-taking, eating habits, etc., is there any fundamental difference between the longevity of the male versus the female body? Thanks for a great show. 
So, other than men being slightly more likely to take risks, are there other reasons for why women live longer? Send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow. Well, that, unfortunately, is all we have time for this week. Next time, we're actually answering more of your science questions. So if you want to send in your questions, now is your chance, and we'll feature them in next week's programme and answer them for you. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com by email, and you can also tweet at Naked Scientists. Thank you to our guests this week who are Hugh Mortimer, Jeff Bader, Matt Cairns and Jill Tarter. And thank you to our production team, Mira Senthalingam, Hannah Critchlow and, of course, Will Nichols. Have a great evening and join us again at the same time next week. Thank you to Dr Cat. We hope she's feeling better. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. See you next time. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. 